We're so excited to welcome you all to the Sugar Free Show with your hosts, Karen Thompson and Emily Maguire. Each episode, we aim to bring you expert interviews and content that will give you the tools to empower you in making the best choices for your health and well-being. Not only look at what you feed your body, but also your mind and soul whilst adding in a whole host of fun and laughter. And always remember that together we can do what we cannot do alone. So on that note, it's time to come and hang out with us. Hi everybody and welcome to the Sugar Free Show with myself, Karen Thompson and nutritionist Emily McGuire. Today we have the amazingly phenomenal Canadian Dr. Jason Fung with us. Um, he has just released this book called The Obesity Code and I um, feel very privileged because I think I'm one of the only people in South Africa that have, a, have my hands on a copy of it. Um, it is probably one of the best books I've read, not because it's brilliant but because I actually want to keep reading it. Um, it's not one of those medical books that's incredibly challenging and hard to understand. It flows beautifully, and you can see Jason knows exactly what he's talking about. Um, you know, when he has written this book, so I'm going to read the bio from the book. It's called The Obesity Code. Um, Dr. Jason Fung grew up in Toronto, Canada, and completed both medical school and an internal medicine residency at the University of Toronto. He headed to the University of California, um, Los Angeles, completing his fellowship in nephrology, which is a kidney disease specialist. He now has both a hospital and office-based practice in Toronto, and is current and is the current chief chief of the Department of Medicine at the Scarborough Hospital General Division. Struggling daily against the worsening epidemic of type 2 diabetes and obesity, Dr. Fung realized the current recommended treatment of eat less, move more was simply not successful. It soon became clear that the model obsession with calories was not the proper model to treat obesity. He established the Intensive Dietary Management Program to provide patients with a unique treatment focused on hormones rather than diets. Um, the program treats conditions related to metabolic syndrome, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, and fatty liver with great success. It now provides guidance both locally and to international patients from as far as New Zealand to the United Kingdom to South Africa. Um, Dr. Jason lives in Toronto with his wife and two boys, and we are so excited to have him on the show. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we are very excited to have you back on. Um, you definitely were one of our, our favorites from our series. So I'm super excited to dive into this book. This I completely mimic what Karen has said. And um, I obviously did my whole master's on obesity science and I wish I had this book at the time when I, when I did that. It would have made it so much easier. So where, just to kind of bring it right back to the beginning, where did the notion come from even to write this book? What made you decide to do something a look at the etiology of obesity. Well, it's it's an interesting um, process because I was trained kind of um, as most doctors are in this kind of calories in, calories out model, and we all learn this. Uh, you know, obesity is simply uh, too many calories in versus too many calories out, or too few calories out, I should say, and that's what causes obesity. And uh, what was interesting was that in the mid um, 2000s, kind of around the turn of the century, there was a lot of interest in the Atkins diet uh, and low carbohydrate diets in general. And so there was a number of studies that got uh, started, and they were published uh, somewhere around 2006, 2007, 2008. And I thought, along with most doctors, thought that this kind of Atkins diet would be like killing people, right? I thought, one, it's some fad diet, it's going to be terrible. You know, people are going to be dying. And what was very interesting to me was that they actually, that's not what it showed at all. It showed that weight loss was, in most cases, much better. And this is very interesting because it um, directly contradicted this whole kind of calories in, calories out model because a lot of these Atkins patients who are eating a lot of uh, fatty foods, for example, were eating just as many calories as before. Uh, but they're still losing weight. So I thought that was really interesting. So I started to look back into it a little bit more. Now, it affects me in my practice quite a bit because I have a lot of type 2 diabetics, and they are many of them are overweight. 
And that's kind of where this whole whole thing, it started out as a real um, a paradox to me as to, one, why this would work at all, this diet would work at all. And then it led me to kind of uh, look deeper into that and realize that there's a lot of paradoxes in nutrition that really just don't make a lot of sense. So you really have to go back to this kind of calories in, calories out model and think about this entire paradigm and, and, and to realize that it really hasn't worked. And the fact that it doesn't work is actually right in front of us, right? Because we've been pushing this whole calorie model for at least 40 years, and obesity has just exploded. In fact, diabetes has exploded. And I deal with all the kind of downstream consequences. These, these patients who are losing their kidney function, they're going blind, they're losing their legs from amputations, and so on. And, and, and that's where really where it came from. And it, re, it made me realize a few other things. One, for example, as doctors, we were just giving a lot of medications. But at the same time, we knew that if you could make these patients lose weight, the diabetes would go away. Like nobody doubts that, right? For all the people who say that it's a chronic disease, when that patient comes into you and says, you know, I lost 50 pounds, my diabetes went away, you don't go, oh, you're lying, right? It's a chronic disease, you're lying to me, right? You say, of course it did, right? Because you lost the weight and the diabetes went away. So at the same time that we knew that it was a dietary disease that was entirely treatable and preventable, we didn't care two bits to actually treat it or prevent it. All we cared about was giving more medications, giving more insulin, and then putting them on dialysis, right? And that was a real um, kind of eye-opener to me that we weren't actually doing any good here. So you actually have to go back to the root cause of the entire problem, which is the obesity, and then you have to go from obesity to what is causing this obesity, right? Because again, whenever we deal with a disease, we always ask what's causing this disease. Right? But for obesity, we never ask this question because we think we know the answer. We think that it's all about calories. But when you actually think about it, logically, the, the answer doesn't make any sense because if you think that it's all calories that causes the disease, then you can simply reduce calories and you will lose weight. Now, that's only been done in probably like 80% of the world's population has tried that, right? And it's failed in virtually every case. And again, when you look back at the studies that have been done, they bear out that this kind of caloric reduction model fails. So I quote a study in the UK where they pulled the records of uh, weight loss in, I think it was like GP's uh, uh, electronic records. And the failure rate to deal with obesity is somewhere around 99.4%, right? So our, our, our advice to cut calories fails in 99.4%, which means it's guaranteed to fail. And the proof is, you know, fairly obvious. Everybody's done it and nobody succeeds. And so why would we continue to give this advice? And, but even worse, why would we not question the science behind this advice and say, well, you know, our advice is based on calories in, calories out. Why do we accept that that is the correct model? It's obviously wrong. It obviously has failed. The proof is in the pudding, right? So that's that kind of where it all kind of came from. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the calories in, calorie out model, I mean, with that, we're making a lot of assumptions, basically, aren't we? Which you kind of cover in the book as well. So what what are we assuming when we say calories in equals calories out and therefore causes weight loss or, or weight gain? Yeah, there's a few um, major assumptions. One is that calories in is kind of independent of calories out. That is, if you say that fat gained is calories in minus calories out, you assume that you can reduce your calories in and calories out will stay exactly the same, right? And if that is the case, then yes, you will lose weight. Unfortunately, and we've known this for only about 100 years, that when you reduce the calories in, the calories out goes down as well. And that's only logical because if you think about it, for example, if you make $100,000 a year and you spend $100,000, what would happen if your salary suddenly went down to $50,000 a year? Would you continue to spend $100,000 a year? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be that stupid. And the body isn't that stupid either, right? I don't know why we assume our body is completely stupid like that, right? If you reduce your calories from 2,000 to 1,500, your body simply adapts because that's how to survive, right? So you reduce your calorie expenditure by the same amount. 
so that you balance out. But the problem is, and we, again, we know this happens for sure in uh, when you simply reduce your calories. The problem is that if you started out burning 2,000 calories, eating 2,000 calories, you go down now to eating 1,500 and burning 1,500. Now you're only burning 1,500. You're cold, you're tired, you have no energy, but you're not losing weight, right? And that's the whole problem. So you plateau. Then you go back up to, say, 1,700 calories because you figure, oh, well, this isn't really worth it. But you're only burning 1,500, so all that weight just comes right back. So the calories in and the calories out are very much linked. So if you, in fact, raise your calories in, you deliberately overeat, your caloric expenditure actually goes up as well. So it works in both ways. So that's one major assumption in this whole sort of calories in, calories out model that doesn't work because all the kind of people who defend it always say, oh, what, you don't believe in physics, the laws of thermodynamics? And that's not the point. The point is that the laws of thermodynamics always hold. But the fact is that and nobody's breaking any laws of thermodynamics, right? The, the, the simple fact is that you've made this assumption that they're independent and they're not. The other major assumption we've made is that the both the calories in and the calories out are, are conscious decision. It's a conscious decision as to what you eat and how much exercise you do. Therefore, oh, it's your decision. So therefore, if you gain weight, it's your fault, right? And this is the whole part that I actually think super unfair about um, obesity is that we blame the people who are the victims, right? So it's blame the victim. If you're a victim, you get blamed because, of, hey, it's your fault, right? You let yourself go and all this stuff that we say. But yet we know that, for example, if you look at appetite, there are hormones that make you hungry and there are hormones which make you full, right? So what you eat is not determined simply on your will. It's determined based on your hormonal influences. So we know that ghrelin is a hunger hormone. We know peptide YY, cholecystokinin. All these hormones make you full. And you know that because, for example, if you are very hungry, and you smell, you know, a pork chop sizzling on the on the, you know, stove. It makes you hungry. But if you've just eaten a huge meal, it probably makes you a little bit nauseous. So the same stimulus, the same pork chop, the same smells has completely different effects based on your hormonal influences. So we know that weight loss, when you lose weight and try and maintain it over a year, that those hunger hormones go up and the satiety hormones go down. That is, you are actually hungry. Your body is trying to make you gain that weight back. So when people fall off their diet, we assume it's their fault, but it's not. Their hormones are telling them to gain weight. They, they went about the diet all wrong. That's the whole problem, right? And the same thing with the calories out. We assume it's all exercise, but almost none of it is exercise because if you look at calories, so example, you burn 2,000 calories, for example, say you go on a treadmill and you walk for 45 minutes. If you've ever been on one of those, um, those calorie counting models, you, you see that the, <laughs> the number rises very slowly. <laughs> so after like half an hour or whatever, you've burned like 100, 150 calories or something, right? So in other words, 95% of your energy expenditure is not exercise. It's, you know, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your kidney, your liver, all of that takes energy to burn, right? And the amount you burn um, generating body heat, that kind of thing, can go up or down. So most of that is not under our conscious control. So again, we have this whole sort of mentality where we want to blame, blame the people who are gaining weight. Um, and, you know, we say that it's their fault, but really it's not their fault. And the reason we do that is because, you know, we've given this advice to eat less and move more. That's been our standard advice for 40 years, and it's failed, right? So as the kind of nutritional authorities, you can believe one of two things. So there's two incontrovertible facts, right? One, we've told people to eat less, move more, calories in, calories out. And two, obesity has just exploded. So either the advice is not correct, in which case that's, you know, their fault. Or they can shift the blame and say, wow, we gave really good advice, but you guys just failed to take it completely. Or blame something else entirely, right? It's, it's you know, 
uh, too many cars, it's video games, it's computers, whatever it is, right? You blame something else other than the advice that you gave, right? Mm -hmm. And so you say that, oh, video games, which came around in 1980, right, with Atari. Oh, that was what's caused it. Well, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Or cars. It's not like cars suddenly spiked up in 1977. So that's the reason that they have to blame somebody else, because they can't believe that this advice is so wrong, because they've never questioned the assumptions underlying their paradigm. And that's really what I talk about, is that this, this, this theory of calories in, calories out, uh, this whole first law of thermodynamics, it's led us so far astray, and nobody ever questions that piece. But that's the key piece that's really been killing us. Because as long as you believe that, as long as you believe that, everything else that follows is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's really where we've gone kind of off the tracks, and we really just have no idea what we're doing with obesity. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the model of obesity and I like the way that you propose it in your book of a new model, I think so what you're saying is encompasses is mostly predominantly with our hormones um, and I think you've obviously yeah. touched on it. So can you take us through kind of what you mean by that? What hormones actually play a role? Are we kind of getting that idea now? Is that kind of coming to light or are we still really far removed from understanding? What is even happening? Um, I think for the most part, we're pretty far from understanding. But um, again, if you think about what causes obesity, um, you have to really look at the, the hormones because hormones really control everything in our body, right? So the main hormone that we're dealing with is insulin. So there's an overlap between calories and insulin, of course, but because if you uh, all foods tend to uh, that that can contain calories tend to also raise insulin, but they're not equally. Um, so you can't say that 100 calories of food will raise insulin X amount because it depends on what that food is. So if you eat carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, sugar and bread and so on, the insulin will spike up way higher than if you eat, say, olive oil. So therefore, for the same amount of calories, you have different effects on insulin. And the, the, the way you know that insulin is the major player is that you have to look at whether or not insulin causes obesity, right? So if your theory now is that insulin causes obesity, then you can do an experiment while you look where insulin is high. Do people gain weight, right? Or if you give insulin, if you give people insulin, will they gain weight? That's the real question you want to know. And of course, every time you look for that, it's true. So when you prescribe insulin, people gain weight. When you give uh, medications that raise insulin, they gain weight. When you treat diabetes but don't raise insulin, like with metformin, they don't gain weight. So again, you can see that every time you cause a rise in insulin, weight goes up. Every time you cause a decrease in insulin, it goes down. So you know that it's the major causal player. Then you can go back and you say insulin is the major player, cortisol as well, but insulin is the major player causing weight gain. Then you say, well, what are the major things that raise and lower insulin? And this is where we, this is where kind of I move into a bit more newer uh, stuff, which is that for many years, it was just all carbohydrates. People talked about carbohydrates raising insulin. But of course, even within carbohydrates, there's a huge discrepancy between how much insulin effect and how much glycemic effect, for example, you have. So if you look at the glycemic index, certain carbohydrates raise insulin, uh, raise glucose a lot, and others don't at all. So sweet potato, for example, if you look at the glycemic index, is not very high uh, compared to, say, white bread or even whole wheat bread. So in carbohydrate foods, the insulin index tracks very closely to the glycemic index. So things like carrots and so on, they just don't have that. So, so there's lots of carbohydrates or beans. There's lots of carbohydrates there, but the effect on the glycemic index is not as high as, say, the Snickers bar or whatever you have. And then you have to apply the same reasoning, not just to carbohydrate foods, but also to proteins and fats as well. And then the other thing, because it turns out that you're not trying to measure the glycemic effect, you want to know the insulin effect. And certain proteins can also raise um, insulin a lot. So if they're raising it a lot, then you're also getting a potentially poor effect for weight. So that's why we don't um, try to use a super high protein diet. Mm -hmm. So, and I think you're kind of touching upon that, but in your book, and the one thing that I like about the obesity code is that 
take the the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis that one step further because as you just said it's not all just about carbs spikes your insulin and that's it so can you talk a little bit more about the the kind of protective factors that you speak about so yes it's reducing your certain carbohydrates but you also talk a lot about the protective factors in this kind of model yeah so certainly refined carbohydrates um, are one of the big players in raising insulin, but it turns out there's other things which will help lower insulin as well. So things such as fiber. So you can do experiments where you give people liquid diets and you measure how high insulin goes. And when you take a lot of fiber, it turns out the insulin goes up much less. So that's good. And of course, this is what I always think is interesting, is that if you look in nature at natural unprocessed foods, except for honey, uh, almost all carbohydrate foods also have fiber, whereas dietary fats and dietary proteins just about never have fiber. So it's very interesting that if you take a lot of processed foods and simply strip out everything other than the carbohydrate, which is what we do with flour, for example, you've taken out all the protective factors, the proteins, the fats. So dietary fat has the same effect of lowering that insulin spike um, and the fiber, which is all very protective. So if you eat natural, unprocessed foods, not only are you getting all the carbohydrate, but you're also getting all those other protective factors along with it, which explains how you can eat a very high carbohydrate, but unprocessed carbohydrate foods, such as you have with the, say, Okinawans, who eat a lot of sweet potato, um, and still have very low insulin levels. So the most famous study was the Katavan study, which uh, was about a 70% carbohydrate diet. But when they measured the insulin levels of these catavans, their insulin levels are not high. They're actually very, very low. So he compared it to his own uh, Swedish cohort, and they're at about the fifth percentile, which means that their insulin levels are lower than 95% of the Swedish population. So super, super, super low insulin levels despite the fact that they have very high carbohydrate intakes, but it's all unprocessed carbohydrates, right? So you're getting all the protective factors. So fiber is one of them. Dietary fats are another one of them. Uh, vinegar is an interesting one because that also has been shown to reduce that sort of insulin spike. And people use that, for example, uh, to try and reduce their glucose. And it's interesting because it's been one of these kind of traditional remedies that's been used through the years for weight loss is vinegar and water. And it's kind of making a little bit of a comeback in that. Um, so, so vinegar is very popular, but also fermented foods. So fermented foods are not acetic acid like vinegar, but it's lactic acid. So kimchi, for example, is getting a lot of uh, play, and uh, natto, which is a fermented soybean product, and uh, sauerkraut, and also things like sourdough bread, which is, yes. you know, again, uh, very interesting because people talk about how sourdough bread is not that bad for you. Well, it has a lot of lactic acid. So again, you're protecting yourself. Um, Italians, for example, eat their bread with olive oil and vinegar. And when you look at uh, studies such as um, uh, there's a very large study looking at olive oil and vinegar dressings, and uh, they show a protective effect as well. And, you know, you know, so when you start looking around, you can see a lot of these uh, things, and they all kind of uh, fit this hypothesis that it's really all about the insulin. It's not that insulin is bad, and some people who don't understand, they say, oh, you're just demonizing insulin. It's like, no, it's excessive insulin. What I'm saying is that obesity is a disease of excessive insulin. Right? It's not that insulin is bad, but it's too high, and that's what drives obesity. So if you understand that too much insulin drives obesity, then you have a rational way to say, okay, now I need to lower my insulin levels. So that includes cutting my carbohydrates, but it includes a lot of other things. And the other thing I touch on, which very, very few people actually talk about, is how insulin resistance kind of plays a huge role in obesity and how it leads to this kind of time-dependent uh, phenomenon of obesity, which is pretty much ignored uh, by most kind of theories of obesity. That is to say that if you think it's all about the calories or even if you think it's all about the carbohydrates, that would mean that losing weight for somebody who has been overweight for 25 years is going to be the same whether you're overweight for 25 years or 25 days. As long as you cut the carbs or calories, it's the same. But it's nothing the same. 
right? Nobody in their right mind would think that it's the same thing. The people who have been overweight for many, many years have a hell of a time losing weight. And, you know, I'm, I don't have any studies to back it up, but everybody kind of understands that, right? And, and it's not because they eat more or whatever. It's because they have a lot of insulin resistance, which is keeping their insulin levels high. And you can't simply ignore that. And it's the same with the fructose, right? Everybody points to fructose and how bad it is. And I think it's bad. But how, how do you reconcile that? Because fructose, um, so if you're a calorie person, you'd say, well, you could take 100 grams of pure fructose or, or sorry, 100 calories of pure fructose or 100 calories of olive oil, and they'll be the same. Well, they're nothing the same, right? If you're a carbohydrate guy, you'd say, well, you could take 100 grams of um, fructose or 100 grams of beans and they'll be the same. They're nothing the same, right? Fructose is much worse for you. And uh, everybody kind of understands that. It's a lot about the sugars. After all, that's what we talk about. But why is sugar so, so, so bad? And it's really because it ties directly into the insulin resistance, whereas glucose does not. So even if you're to eat bread and stuff, it's not actually, I don't think it's as bad as eating like a lot of sugar. Now, I think people have recognized that for sure. If you look at sales of soda, if you look at sugar overall, it's coming down, which is great. It's great news. But this kind of theory uh, of uh, where, where you look at the insulin resistance and the fructose, fructose causes a lot of fatty liver, which causes a lot of insulin resistance directly. Without even the obesity, you can get a lot of insulin resistance. Can you, you were just about to touch on the fructose there, so you kind of took my question away um, with that, but there is a lot of, um, I think people still get confused between glucose, and Corin and I were actually just talking about this before you came on with us, Jason, and can you just kind of sort of break down, why is fructose, you know, worse for the body than, say, glucose, kind of what happens biochemically in very simple terms, so what is going on with it? Right. So if you look at insulin, so the, the insulin is the key driver of obesity, right? So if you take glucose, that will raise insulin levels. It'll raise your sugar and raise your insulin. But fructose does not do that. The glycemic index is very low. So it doesn't raise your blood sugar and doesn't directly raise your insulin. So you'd think that it was better. And a lot of, for, for a lot of years, they, people thought it was better for you. Of course, you know, as soon as they started using it, they realized it was really, really bad. So insulin um, also leads, if you have constant stimulation of insulin, you, what you get is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance will then lead back to higher insulin levels, right? It's a vicious cycle. So it's kind of like when you yell at your kids, right? If you yell at them the first time, they yell, like, oh, they listen right away. But if you yell at them all the time, they stop listening to you, right? And that's the same as the body. If your insulin levels are always high, it's like the insulin is always yelling at these cells and the cells stop responding eventually, right? So what the body does, the knee-jerk reaction is to yell even louder, right? Same as our kids, right? You just yell even louder. So the problem is that it's a vicious cycle. You see that if, you, if the insulin's yelling at the cell, the cell becomes resistant, so the body yells even louder. Of course, when you yell louder, you develop more resistance. So insulin resistance is a way that the insulin levels stay high. And worse than that, they stay high for a long period of time. And it, it's in a vis this vicious cycle, which is why if you've had obesity for 15 years, it's just a lot harder. You've been going around this cycle for a long time. Where fructose ties in is that it actually directly causes insulin resistance. So when you eat, say, 100 grams of pure glucose, say like bread, so it's just glucose. It's not fructose. Your sugar goes up, your insulin goes up. But the glucose can be used by almost every cell in the body. So your body can actually disperse that energy of that glucose to your muscles, to your liver, to your kidney, to your brain, to everywhere, right? And all the muscles of the all the muscles, everything, all, all the cells of your body are busy using up this glucose. If you were to take 100 grams of pure fructose, no, no cell other than the liver can actually use that fructose. So the problem is that all of that fructose goes directly into the liver, right? So instead of being able to disperse this energy and have all the cells kind of help you out and, you know, burn it up, only the liver has that job. 
right? And it's like, just like when you have, you know, you have a lot of work to do. If you have, you know, 100 people doing it, yeah, that's pretty easy. But if you have one person doing it, it all piles up. And that's exactly what happens to the fructose. So if the fructose all goes into the liver, the liver can't handle it because it's only one organ, right? It's not like the entire body is helping you out. The entire body is doing nothing to help you out. So it all piles up. And what it does is it turns into fatty liver. And the fatty liver is what causes all this insulin resistance. So as the insulin resistance goes up, it directly feeds into this loop of insulin resistance and high insulin levels, right? So if you eat a lot of fructose, you get the insulin resistance, then the body is going to raise the insulin because it needs to yell at the cell louder, right, to overcome this resistance. And then you set up the cycle all over again. So it's not in the short term. Fructose is not a problem in the short term. So if you eat a little bit of sugar once in a while, yeah, sure, it's probably not the worst thing in the world. But when you have this kind of chronic overconsumption, it will it will lead downstream to a lot of problems and feeds directly into this second kind of loop, which is really bad because it's self-perpetuating, right? So if the insulin resistance leads to more insulin, leads to more insulin resistance, it perpetuates itself. It's a vicious cycle. So even if you cut out the fructose, that cycle, once it's established, keeps going. And that's the whole problem. And that's why some people find it really hard to lose weight because it's it's there. They're changing their diet and they're like, we can't do anything. It's like, yeah, because you've got insulin resistance like crazy. So the high insulin resistance, of course, is the key uh, part of type 2 diabetes. It's mm -hmm. That's the main pathophysiology of that. Mm -hmm. I think that's been one of the best explanations I've heard on fructose and its impact. So I think thank you for, for that, Jason. That was really... Um, where would you then say artificial sweeteners come into play and kind of what is your thoughts on those in the diet? Yeah, I think that they actually have pretty much no role to play. Now, the thing is that, uh, yeah, you know, I get all kinds of flack from people who really like these artificial sweeteners, right? So the calorie people, they love them. Again, look at the bottom line of, you know, the problem with a lot of nutritional research is nobody seems to use a lot of logic. So if artificial sweeteners were really great and they really worked, then we wouldn't have an obesity crisis, would we? It's not like nobody's heard of Diet Coke, right? Everybody's heard of Diet Coke. Everybody drinks Diet Coke. It's very popular. It doesn't work because nobody loses weight drinking a lot of Diet Coke, right? So yes, you can cut the calories from the soda down, but you can't treat the obesity. So if it doesn't work, it means that those artificial sweeteners are not taking care of the problem. And the problem is that in some people, the insulin goes up just as high with the, I mean, a lot of studies were done on aspartame, but it goes up just as high with the aspartame as it does with the sugar. And that's why you, what you see is that there's no overall benefit. Now, I think that in some people, they don't have that problem and stevia people ask me about stevia all the time the studies are not all there with stevia in some people it appears to do the same but again if you think about it it's very easy to tell whether or not um, this is going to work for you use the artificial sweeteners if you start losing a lot of weight hey great go ahead and use it like do you know how many people like what percentage that's going to work in like i don't know 0.5 percent right? Everybody's done that already. So if you think it's going to work for you, go ahead, do it, right? But I doubt very much that it is going to work. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to talk about all this stuff. We just stick stevia in everything we eat and we'd be fine. And it was the same idea. I don't know if you ever had that fake fat, Olestra. So in the United States, about, um, I don't know, about 10 years ago, there was this fake fat, so it was the same idea as artificial sweeteners. So instead of using real fat, you use this fake fat. The body can't absorb it. It goes right through you, and then uh, you don't absorb it. So you, there's no calories, right? It didn't work at all, right? It turned out to be one of the, like, ten worst ideas ever, like, by Time magazine. It was quite funny, actually. Um, but people didn't buy it. People didn't lose – and it was because they didn't lose weight, right? So, again, you've got fake fat. You've got fake sugar. So really, if it was all about, you know, using these artificial um, um, chemicals to trick our bodies, yeah, we would have solved this thing like ages ago, 
right? But the thing is that it hasn't worked. I mean, aspartame has been around since the 70s, right? And it doesn't really help at all. So therefore, it must not have any uh, overall benefits. And again, it's because it raises insulin just to the same level, right? So what about That's xylitol? Sorry. Uh, xylitol is harder to know. The studies really just aren't there. Like the, the difference is that you use very little of the xylitol um, compared to like some of the chemicals. So I don't, I, I you know, I tried looking at uh, some studies, but I really don't see any studies of whether or not it works or not. I think the key is to, if you're, you are going to use it, just to use a little bit of it, just as you need it. But the key is, you know, I, I don't really know whether or not that's going to be good or not. It doesn't have any calories, but whether or not it stimulates insulin or not is really the question. Because again, it's not calories that drives obesity; it's the insulin which drives obesity. Um, you know, so the xylitol, I don't know. I don't. I don't really know. A lot of there's a lot of stuff used. Like if you look at studies of like gum, like there's a lot of um, chewing gum mm -hmm. uses these sugar alcohols, um, but the amount is very small, so it's hard to know. Right? It's, it's like tiny I mean, thing is, there's a trend in South Africa where people are doing these banting baked goods where they literally use a huge amount of xylitol and nut flowers and they're just creating fake junk food that's supposedly healthy. I have an mm -hmm. issue with any sweetener because of the, the sugar addiction aspect that I come from where you know, the yeah. sweetness it triggers cravings for more. Um, but I do really think what you're saying about the, the insulin resistance is something that we do need to watch and, and specifically, you know, hope that more studies are going to come out with that and, and sweetness to point us in the right direction. Yeah, I have the same, I have the same bias. That is, um, you know, when they talk about uh, low-carb bread or something like that, it's like, oh, use this and this instead of this and this. I'm like, mm. You know, to me, it's always don't look for like the latest and greatest thing because it's probably not going to work. You want to look at kind of the tried and true. So that's why what I touch on at the end is not like the latest and greatest diet trend, right? Fasting, which we use a lot of in our clinic, is actually probably the first and oldest, you know, therapeutic yeah. regimen, right? It's been used for centuries, really millennia, right? Mm -hmm. If there was a problem that was going to come up with it, we probably would have figured it out a thousand years ago why it was so bad, right? And th that's the thing. It's the same with these nut flowers and so on. I, I don't know that the, there's any studies on the, the, these kind of, um, you know, these kind of paleo bars and all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. that comes out. Um, but I ha I, I'm kind of a little bit biased against it because, you know, it's, it's like these miracle cures that come out every so often, right? It's like... Um, or like these superfoods like quinoa and stuff. I have nothing against them, but it's like, okay, well, look, the Nordic people never ate quinoa, okay, and they were fine, right? The Japanese never ate quinoa. They were fine. So it's to eat these foods. There are definitely ways to have a diet that are full of foods, and the thing is that you get back to the point that if you eat real, whole, unprocessed foods, our bodies are adapted to it, whether it's, you know, fish like the Japanese and edamame beans, or whether it's like whale blubber like the Inuit, or whether it's blood like the Maasai, or whether it's carbohydrates like yams and sweet potatoes. Our bodies can deal with that. But you have to take these foods in the natural, uh, the, the, the way they naturally are. Okay, so we've just discovered a potato in South Africa, right, which apparently comes from Australia and it's called Charisma. Now this potato, apparently it's not genetically modified, it apparently has 9 grams of carbohydrates in the potato compared to the 17 grams of carbohydrate for sweet potato. Um, so would the same be true with the fiber and protective factors of the sweet potato versus the white potato? Like what would you make of this? Would you recommend it? Like what's the deal? Well, the thing about potatoes in general is that it's actually quite an interesting um, thing because if you don't fry these potatoes, uh, they may not actually be that bad because, you know, there's a lot of talk about resistant starch and so on, which acts very much like fiber, right? So it's interesting because the Irish ate a hell of a lot of potatoes and they were fine until they started eating all that sugar, right? Um, <laughs> And it's interesting to me because there's obviously the potato and a lot of these kind of um, starchy uh, underground vegetable sort of things 
to me, I think that the evidence may show that they may not be as bad, as long as you don't deep fry them in vegetable oils, for example, because we eat most of our fed, uh, potatoes in North America as potato chips and french fries, yeah. right? Yeah. Not a lot of boiled potatoes, right? I actually can't think of the last time anybody offered me a boiled potato, right? But if you actually look at the glycemic index of boiled potatoes and stuff, it's not bad. And the other interesting thing is that if you cook the potato, then cool it, like with potato salad or something, which people used to eat in the 50s, you actually generate a, a large amount of resistant starch which I, I think is a, a very, very interesting topic because, again, the resistant starch doesn't get absorbed and it blocks that sort of insulin spike. So it gets you back to the idea that, hey, maybe it's not all in the foods we eat. Maybe the traditional ways of preparing foods and stuff may have been actually okay, like baked potatoes and boiled potatoes and stuff. Mm -hmm. French fried potatoes, potato chips, maybe not, right? That it's There's something perhaps in that high heat cooking and the vegetable oils that we cook them in that is screwing everything up. So it makes it a problem. And it's the same with the rice. Um, if you look at Asian cultures, tons mm -hmm. of rice. rice everywhere. And it wasn't brown rice, I can tell you that. It wasn't brown rice, it was all... <laughs> Um, you know, white rice. That's all we ate. And th the thing is that if you look at um, population studies um, of the Asians in the 80s, there was very little obesity, very little diabetes. But if you look at the amount of carbohydrates they're eating, it was super high. But the key was that they ate virtually no sugar. Um, so that's one of the clues because sugar, I think, is much worse. I think it's like twice as worse. And the other thing is that they weren't eating all the time, right? They eat once or twice, right? They have their lunch and their dinner, and rice and vegetables, rice and vegetables. And they'd have these periods where they just weren't eating, right? So again, it, it's those periods of uh, where you're not eating that is going to help break that cycle of insulin resistance. So now, of course, they've gone to the kind of eat all the time and lots of fast food and lots of sugar. And in addition to the rice, the Chinese are killing it. They're like going crazy with the diabetes. It went from like 1% in 1980 to like 13%. That's crazy. That's like in 30 years, like in a single generation, the prevalence of diabetes has gone up like 13,000% or something insane like that. That is like crazy. But again, whether you point the uh, finger at rice, it's hard to say because they eat tons of rice. Whether you point the finger at potatoes, it's hard to say. So I think there there is more there. So certainly if, if it's a natural, um, you know, something that a potato that people have eaten, yeah, maybe it is. There's, there's, there's definitely so much more there to be kind of discovered. But what I think that is, is that we have to start looking at not so much the macronutrients, but really it's our own body we have to look at, right? What's the effect on our bodies? What's the effect on our insulin? Like, and, and the timing of the meals, which is, again, something nobody ever covers, right? It's like if you eat from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed, I don't think that's a healthy thing. For mm -hmm. I think you've lost that kind of balance, right? But nobody talks about it. As long as the carbs are the same and the calories are the same, everybody says, well, it's the same. But it's, I don't think it is. I think if you look at study, and to me this is one of the most fascinating uh, pieces of research, is that if you look at um, 1977 USA, because a lot of data that I get very easily as Americans, um, they're eating three times a day, and by 2006, it's closer to five to six times a day, right? And that can't be good, and nobody talks about it. But when somebody actually did a study and looked at what influence this had, their conclusion was that the increase in meal timing was about twice as important as the change in diet, which to me sounds about right, yet we never talk about it. We talk, like, we talk obsessively about, you know, oh, what percentage carbs, what percentage fat, what percentage protein, like this is all questions of what to eat. Should you eat avocados? Should you eat bread? Should you eat this? Should you eat that? And that's all important, but then there's this entire thing about, oh, and then we ask when you eat, it's like, oh yeah, whatever, right? It's like, why do we do that? We don't think about the, the, the meal timing question, and, and I think it's actually something that we totally miss, right? Like eat it first thing in the morning. You know, if you look at circadian rhythms, your hunger is at its very lowest point at 8 a.m., right? Mm -hmm. This is a natural rhythm. Mm -hmm. So why the hell would you want to force yourself to eat if you want to lose weight? That is not a winning strategy, right? And that's the thing. Is, is we, 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 
we, we don't consider all these other things. We, we kind of assess about this one thing like calories or, or, or fat or this and that. And they, they, you got to look at the whole picture. There's like so many different things that are going on here. And it might be different from for you than it is for me, right? I mean, this is the thing that I always think is interesting. Like if your car doesn't start, right? For one guy, it's because I have no gas. For the next guy, it's because he has his spark plugs are gone, right? But the guy with no gas says, oh, look, I filled up on gas. Now my car works perfectly. So he tells the other guy, it has to be the gas, right? And he fills up on gas and doesn't work, right? And then it's the same, oh, I changed my spark plugs and, you know, it worked perfectly. So it has to be, the and, and then they fight, right? And it's like, oh my God, right? Uh, it's different. There's so many different pieces of the puzzle here. Like, it could be different, right? One person, it could be insulin resistance. The next, it could be cortisol. The next, it could be, you know, carbohydrates. The next, it could be fructose. And the next, it could be, you know, any number of different things, like eating all the time, right? You know, to me, again, sleep deprivation is another fabulously interesting topic because there's no calories and there's no carbohydrate, for example. Yet we all know that sleep deprivation causes weight gain. Like all the studies show mm -hmm. it. So why is that? Well, it's because it raises cortisol, which raises glucose and chronically raises insulin. But again, you're talking about it's a hormonal issue. It's a cortisol issue. Why does chronic pain syndromes and fibromyalgia and so on cause weight gain? It's a cortisol issue, right? And, and that's the thing is that it's not calories. It's not this. It's not that. But it could be different, right? Somebody's problem could be sleep deprivation. And, and you go and change them to a low-carb diet, and hey, it doesn't work because their problem was sleep deprivation, right? So yeah. we understand mm -hmm. this in all other diseases, but for some reason, we think that there's only one true thing, right? There's only one thing that matters in obesity, and it's calories, or it's carbs, or it's the no. There's like ten different things, and and, and it could be that yours is sleep deprivation, and you go on a ketogenic diet, and it doesn't work for you. Then you say, oh, the ketogenic diet sucks. Well. It was not your problem, right? It was your sleep deprivation <laughs> and your stress, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I love about the book is that it's about treating obesity as a hormonal rather than a caloric imbalance by taking into account not only the food that we eat but also you mentioned meditation and stuff in the book which I think is absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. But I'm going to rename you Dr. Jason Fast Fung because <laughs> you have become known as the king of fasting. <laughs> And our participants here have <laughs> asked some questions about fasting. And specifically, there's one here from Marilyn who says she skips breakfast every day um, and eats in a six-hour window versus a 24-hour fast once or twice a week. She just wondered which worked better and quickest to reverse fatty liver disease. And I know you've got some great meal plans here for 24 and 36-hour fasts in the book, which is fantastic. But if you could just talk us through it a little bit and I do recommend everybody get the book because all the info is in here. Yeah, so the key is that fatty liver disease is also a disease of too much insulin, right? So the whole point is how are you going to lower insulin? And all those strategies work. So time-restricted eating, which is eating in a six-hour window, which means that you have like an 18-hour fast every day kind of thing, works well. 24-hour um, fasting twice a week works well. It really, there, there's no kind of best way, right? Uh, it really depends on one, how it fits into your schedule, and two, which one you prefer. So, I mean, we've put hundreds of people on fast, and it's very interesting because some people will come back and say, "Oh man, those 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 uh, long fasts, I can't do more than like 24 hours," and say, "Okay, we'll do it more frequently," right? And other people will come back and they say, "Oh, the seven days works so easy for me," right? and say, it's just great, if you like that, then we'll do that. So it really doesn't matter so much which one you do, but which one works the best for your lifestyle. So for example, for me, I like to have dinner every night with my family. So I very, very rarely go more than 24 hours. Um, but because it doesn't work for me, right? If if you're having dinner with you know your family and that's the time that you get together and have it, you don't want to ruin that simply for the sake of fasting. Like, yeah, once in a while you do it, it's okay, right? And this is where some of the um, kind of uh, traditional societies had, had got it right. So you have societies like the Greek Orthodox where there's fasting everywhere, but it's a societal thing. Everybody does it. So it's not like you're missing out. Everybody's fasting at the same time. 
And that's terrific. You get that kind of social support and it makes it easy. But you have to figure out what makes the most sense for you. And everybody is different. So I think both will work, whether you want to do kind of, um, you know, 18-hour fast every day or two 24-hour fast in a week. Whatever works for you is whatever works the best. You know, for, for me, what works is I skip breakfast kind of five days out of seven. And then a couple of times a week, I also skip lunch, which is a 24-hour fast. And that worked well enough for me. Of course, if I have Christmas holidays where I'm kind of eating kind of constantly and much heavier than much more than usual, then in January, I will do more fasting, right? And, that, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm down to my usual weight. If I go on a cruise, I am not going to fast on that cruise, right? Because that's not the point. The point is that these diets have to be intermittent because life is not constant, right? There are going to be big periods and small periods. And again, this is where the traditional societies and major religions have it right. The cycle of life is not constant dietary restriction. It's feast and fast, right? Christmas, you're going to eat a lot, and, and Lent, you're going to eat very little. That's the cycle, right? That It's not, you know, never eat ice cream for the rest of your life ever again, right? Even if you go to, you know, your son's wedding and he wants you to eat a piece of cake, you'll say no, right? And it's like, okay, that's not the point here, right? The point is that this is, uh, you know, a strategy that is, flexible and allows you to do things when you want to do things and do more of it when you need to and less of it when you need to. So that's the entire point of the, um, the kind of exercise. So that's why fasting, there's so many advantages of fasting. And that's when I, you know, some of the things we talk about, uh, it'll be coming up actually in another book, but um, it's, 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 you know, why it's so much easier and why it's more beneficial because it's flexible, because it's, doesn't cost money because you don't have to think about it because it simplifies your life, right? So like eating, you know, um, home-cooked meals all the time is great, but it takes a lot of time, right? And whereas fasting is kind of free and stuff. So there's a lot of benefits there. I haven't, I don't touch on that so much in this book, but definitely it, it's got a lot of advantages. And again, the, the, the fact that it's been used for such a long time successfully, Right? Everybody always comes to me and says, I can't do that. I'm like, you know, that literally millions of people over thousands of years have done it, right? Everybody can do it, right? It's the fact that our society makes people believe that they can't, right? You can't even skip a single meal without somebody jumping down your throat, right? You skip breakfast and somebody starts jumping down your throat, right? Like it's insane. Um, I've got a question. It's quite a selfish question, actually, but um, I'm just going to ask it. Caffeine, what does that do to my insulin? Because often I won't have breakfast, right? I won't have traditional breakfast or lunch, but I'm having coffee with cream throughout the day. So, yeah. you know, I'm still there. Yeah, so the, the thing about it is that the cream is, is not that bad because most of it is fat. So if you look at dietary fat, the point is to have low insulin, right? The point is not to, that, that's the major point, that if you put fat, dietary fat has very little effect on insulin. Now, most people don't eat pure fat as a meal. You don't eat like a bit of olive oil for, for lunch, right? Um, you usually eat it with other stuff, which is why you don't see it that often. But if you have coffee with cream, there's a little bit of um, protein there. So you do raise your insulin slightly, but it's low enough that it probably makes no difference at all. So in our oh, clinic, okay. we let people have coffee with cream, no problem. Technically, it's not fast, but I don't, you know, I'm not a purist, right? I, I, I want to know what works. And so we've had people who, very few people, who, who it doesn't work, and then we tell them to go on just pure water, like water fasting. But it's very rare. It's probably less than like 1% of people. Most people who do right. it um, have no problem. So if you look at Michael Mosley's 5-2 uh, diet, which is big in the UK, uh, he allows 500 calories on a fasting day. So again, you can take a little bit of calories without kind of breaking the kind of hormonal uh, changes that you're looking for, which is basically a period of very low insulin levels. That's what you're aiming for. So in the United States, I don't know if you've ever heard of Bulletproof Coffee, yes. um, but it's kind of popular on the West Coast among the uh, kind of uh, Silicon Valley crowd. So you're blending in butter and stuff into your coffee. And it's a huge amount of calories, right? It's yes. like a meal. Massive. But it's all fat, right? And that's the point. You're taking a lot of calories, 
but none of those calories will stimulate your insulin particularly at all. So even though you have a lot of calories, you have very little insulin effect. So in essence, you're still doing you know, what's sometimes called a fat fast, which is just taking dietary fats. So again, you're providing that very low level of insulin that you're looking for. So it works. It works for a lot of people, right? So that's why it's very popular uh, among some, and some think it's like the worst thing ever. But really, if you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense to me to, to do that. So coffee with cream or bulletproof coffee or coffee with coconut oil. You tell them, yeah, go ahead, do it. If you don't get the results you're looking for, then you, you, you can change. Because you've got some great um, insulin-resistant hacks, you know, to kind of like counteract the insulin effect. With your vinegar trick, to add the two tablespoons of vinegar to meals that contain high carbohydrate, and also to add some cinnamon to coffee, am I right? I've heard you say that somewhere. Yeah, cinnamon to, is, is also another interesting one, which has been used a lot for uh, diabetics, actually. So some people get a tremendous effect of it, um, but... Certainly, there's some people who feel that it actually helps uh, lower the blood sugars as well, which is going to lower the, the kind of insulin effect. But in any in any case, the cinnamon is just a great addition for flavor and stuff, right? It kind of breaks the monotony a little bit. And cinnamon to a lot of stuff really just adds a lot of uh, flavor. So yeah, the vinegar is not that tasty, right? <laughs> Has been used, again, traditionally. Uh, for uh, you know like hundreds and hundreds of years right and, and it's always interesting to me how these kind of ancient peoples figured it out like long time ago probably through trial and error that hey vinegar is, has all these benefits right and, and, and they just incorporated it uh, even though they didn't know any of the science behind it and then mm -hmm. now we catch up and we say oh yeah vinegar is great and it's like yeah well they knew that like ages ago right ages and so, so that, that part is always interesting to me. But the fasting is another one that people figured that out ages ago, right? And again, it's not because it was super unhealthy. They figured, they told people to do it because they knew it was very, very healthy. The funny part about it is that in Hollywood, all these stars, I'm sure that all these stars fast. Why? Because it worked so well. Right, but none of them talk about it because there's this whole stigma of anorexia and all yes. this stuff. They're afraid yes. they're going to be labeled, and so they don't talk about it. But I'm I'm willing to bet that every single one of these, you know, celebrities fast when they need to look good. And you know what? They don't understand that it's actually really healthy for them, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, we've we've got an inpatient clinic where we treat eating disorders, and God forbid we would, if we had to introduce fasting into the diet there, we would be closed down for promoting anorexia. I can absolutely see that. Yeah, mm. and and it's crazy because anorexia is actually a psychiatric disorder of yes. body image, right? So it's like because I, I I use the analogy. Well, you know, fasting, which is traditional, has been used for hundreds of years, right? You're not going to use it in somebody who's malnourished and underweight, first of all. So yeah, there's the yeah. appropriate place to use it. But the other thing is that just because you don't eat doesn't mean you get a psychiatric disorder. It's like saying that, oh, you shouldn't wash your hands in case you get obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Mm. Oh, that's why I don't wash my hands. Like, that's crazy, right? Obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder is a psychiatric disorder, right? You don't get it from washing your hands, right? It's like, but, but people don't make that connection. There's actually a study that shows that it doesn't, uh, fasting doesn't raise your risk of anorexia, but it, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's purely common sense, right? It's like, think about it again, people have fasted for a few thousand of years and anorexia has been around for like, you know, 60 years kind of thing, right? There was a little bit before it, but it wasn't an epidemic or anything, right? So it's always been there. That's about it. Mm. Amazing. I know. I think um, well, Hollywood people knew it back in the day. A lot of people yeah. talk about it. Hugh Jackman, for example, he talks about it. And mm -hmm. um, Beyonce does these master cleanses. So a few people do talk about it. But for the most <laughs> Uh, Jimmy Kimmel, who's a talk show host. There's a few people who do talk about it, but for the most part, I think that they're too afraid of being uh, stigmatized for promoting anorexia, right? So, yeah. Uh, but but the reason they do it is because, you know, you got this big premiere coming up or you're going on the red carpet and, you know, the camera adds like 10 pounds, right? So they're all like, oh, yeah, I got to get rid of it. And there's no, no, no better way and 
no faster way. And, um, uh, you know, they, they know it as well as anybody mm -hmm. else, right? That's amazing. Um, we are. I'm just getting very conscious um, of your your time, Jason. So I'm going to end on a question that we ask everyone at the show, and um, that is, um, what would you say are your top three kind of tips for living a, a sugar free life? And it doesn't just have to be nutrition based. Yeah, I think that the um, the, the top three. I mean. I think the number one would be really to stick to kind of whole unprocessed foods, right? I mean, the added sugars to me is always the big, big thing. A lot of people ask about fruit, and I always say, well, if, if eating some fruit is like the worst that you do, that's not that bad, right? It's really all the added sugars. Um, and, and it comes in a lot of processed foods that you don't even see, you know, like sauces and stuff you don't think you're getting a lot of sugar yeah. but you are so really sticking to kind of whole foods and unprocessed foods is still i think advice that we can kind of all agree on um uh, number two i think is to if it's too hard then just don't eat right so increasing the amount of fasting periods right and it doesn't mean that you do like 40 days and 40 nights right it means that you know, maybe you cut out a few of the snacks because snacks tend to be highly processed because there's, you know, they're not full meals, right? It's not like you're getting, going out and buying a piece of salmon and frying it up. It's just something, a snack, right? You know, you grab it, it's a cookie or it's something and it tends to have a lot of these processed foods. So cutting out all the snacking is probably the main thing. And then um, the, the third thing is like the breakfast. The breakfast is the, the, the big one, I think, because everybody's, trying to get somewhere at breakfast time so nobody has time and that's why you eat toast and jam or muffin or a donut or whatever it is it's always highly processed carbohydrates usually with a lot of sugar right and so if it's too difficult to like make some eggs for breakfast or something then don't just go right through the funny part i think about fast uh, breakfast is that the very word itself actually tells you it's the meal that breaks your fast. It's not, you have to eat it first thing in the morning. You can break your fast at 12 o'clock, right? You can break your fast at dinner time if you want. But the other thing it implies is that you have to fast every day because you can't break a fast if you're not fasting. So it means that what they recognized, you know, again, so many years ago is that fasting is a part of everyday life. It's really just the flip side of eating. Right. But those have to be in balance. The time you're eating and the time you're fasting. It's part of everyday life. And we, we've gone from, you know, nothing after dinner to kind of breakfast, which is like a 12 hour fast every day to like, oh, just eat all the time. Eat until you go to bed. And first thing you get up, start eating. Right. And it's like you're going to lose that weight that way. You really think so? I don't. So again, you know, in terms of cutting out the sugars, breakfast is a, is, a, is a big one, right? There's a lot of sugars, a lot of processing, a lot of processed foods there, snacks. Um, I think if you can do that, that's, that's, that gets you kind of a, a long way towards mm -hmm. uh, getting rid of those added sugars. Mm -hmm. That is very phenomenal um, top three tip there. And I think definitely the breakfast one. I think so many people still think that, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I think we've just completely yeah. got away from from really even understanding what it means um yeah. so jason thank you so much for your time i think this has been i mean car and i probably sit here all evening or afternoon for you um you have just such a wealth of knowledge um i would highly highly encourage everybody to go and get this book it's really probably one of the best that i have read in this space um so um, everyone, I think you can. It's available worldwide on Amazon. Is that correct, Jason? We'll have yeah, I think in Australia it doesn't come out till end of April, but it's okay. available in the UK. Um, I don't know about South Africa. I, I asked no, about that. No, we don't have it yet. But no? you can buy it on Kindle. We can buy the the ebook from Amazon on Kindle. Oh, okay. Because uh, I think it's the same publisher for the um, UK as, as South Africa, it's Scribe, and they said that it should be available, but I don't know when they're... Catherine got it last night um, on one of the, the participants. Um, she got the ebook version on Amazon. Oh.
Um, we are always a little bit behind, but I will um, try and find it in the bookstores and post it on, on the site. I did post an offer here on our page where you can click through to the Amazon site and get it now. It is worth every cent. It is absolutely phenomenal. And guess who wrote the foreword? Our very own Prof. Noakes. Um, and obviously that means the book is brilliant. <laughs> Thank you again so much, Jason. And we've just loved Thank having you. you on here. Thank you, Jason. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. The Sugar Free Show podcast is sponsored by the Sugar Free Reset Guide. If you're looking at trying to give up sugar, to lose weight, improve your skin, or have a greater amount of vitality, the Sugar Free Reset Guide is a tool that can help you with this. Packed with e-guides, meal plans, recipes, eating out lists, and worksheets, it gives a detailed step-by-step approach on how to quit sugar for 30 days and beyond. Now you can challenge yourself anytime, any month to quit sugar. Head on over to thesugarfreerevolution.com where you can get a downloadable copy of the Sugar Free Reset Guide. It's time to see what quitting sugar can do for your body and your health.